I'm sure you could hear the creaking pipes or settling bricks if you're quiet long enough. Unlikely, given the present company. I'm choosing to pretend that isn't about me. It wasn't. Dick? <laughs> Jess, what's over there? <laughs> I don't know. Beds, maybe. Mattresses, I guess. Jess, you said it doesn't look abandoned in a typical way. Well, yeah, look at this place. I mean... Normally, you'd have graffiti or garbage or whatever, right? Oh, true. Nothing, see? It's still obviously abandoned, but just not occupied, if that makes any sense. Yeah, weirdly it does. Hey, Jamie. Yo. Oh, hey. Why here? Morris Dunlaw Psychiatric Hospital was home to some of the most horrific and inhuman treatments. In the area. In the area? There was a worse one, but who wants to drive over an hour on Halloween? Hallow's Eve. Or something. Isn't that the name of it? All Hallow's Eve? That definitely sounds scarier. Sounds more pretentious. It sounds formal, and fuck it, we can be formal here. So, uh, where are we doing this thing? We could do it here. Front hall, close to the entrance. Mm, In case of emergency. Well, Kevin and Sean are going to be at least another 20 minutes. I say we start. And, uh... Oh, 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 wait! Wait, wait, wait! Um, what are we waiting for? Shh! He's building to something. He just walked away. Here! 
Whoa, what the fuck was this? Oh, looks like a clinic or something. No, it looks like an operating room, but I don't think they would put that on the first floor. Whatever it is, it's perfect. Look at the machines. They're old, but they look like hardly a day has passed. How weird is that? Dylan, is it perfect? I mean, this was more your idea than anyone's. Oh, it is. So, what's the plan then? I don't think Jeremy and I are uh, fully in the loop here. Happy to be along, mind you. Well, let's find a spot to sit. On the floor? (laughs) Yes, Nathan. Okay, just checking. Um, why are there gurneys here? Yeah, that was a question. (laughs) I don't know, honestly. Fair, but I can't be the only one recognizing this for what it is. Slasher flicks at Slasher flicks at (laughs) Thanks for coming, all. Hey, of course. I think we all agreed. Uh, Agreed to what? Dylan? When I was a kid, we didn't have much money. Birthdays, Christmases, none of it really even went through our house. I grew up thinking that none of the holidays were all that important. That they didn't really matter to me, and truth be told, they didn't. All of them were just postcard lies, you know? But not Halloween. On Halloween, we celebrated. I don't know how it started or why, but we always did. No matter what. We didn't have anything to hand out, obviously, so instead, for the kids that really needed it, we put on a trick, a scare, a way to get the neighborhood ready for the season. The right way. After all, a scare is free, right? One year, one of the last before my brother left for school, we decided to really live it up. We had a course, uh, a maze the kids could walk through, made of garbage bins and sheet metal. There was a table full of shaved styrofoam that we had scored from the garbage trucks that parked on our street to use as horrible body parts. All of it was pretty tame, thinking back, but we found some paint and made it real. Buckets of it. My brother said he found it near the dump, and it was perfect. We lathered ourselves in it, staining every piece of clothing that we had with this thick, red paint. We poured it all over our fake body parts, and we slathered it all over the walls of the maze. The whole night, no one noticed it had an off-putting, iron-like smell. It wasn't until that night as I showered that I even noticed the broken pieces of tooth in my hair. The police had to be called to make sure it wasn't human. Apparently some people get rid of evidence that way on Halloween. Our mom told us it was just a pig. That a local farm had just decided to dump the blood there, and that it was a fluke accident, but... I know. Animal teeth don't look like that. Jesus Christ, that's fucked up. (laughs) No, it's a story. We're all storytellers. In one way or another, we've told our fair share of horror stories, and tonight, we're going to do it again. Well, how about you, Harlan? Well, shit. <laughs> ah. Uh. Alright. I go. A few years back, before Amazon became a 
big thing. And eBay was the online store most people used. I tried to buy a uh, rare book. Nothing special. My granddad had an obsession with Rosicrucianism. Uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I found a copy online. Um, chatted with the guy. And actually chatted with him, too. Like, phone calls. Um, he ended up being a really chill guy, I thought. So, you know. Said he came into the book through a death or some such thing. I ended up planning on picking up the book after work one night. I worked at a movie rental place at the time, and it was around 11.30 by the time I had finished locking up and arrived at the building. So I called him. Hey man, I'm here. Good. Slow, but good. Nice, man. Did you want to come up? Yeah. What number was it again? 309. I'll buzz you in. Cool, cool, cool. Give me one sec. No worries. Cold out? Yeah. It's almost going to snow, I think. Damn. Yeah. Okay. 309? Yeah. Yeah, I don't see it. Worn out, you can't even tell. Duh. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's the top uh, right one, I think. It's worn out, so I guess. There. Oh. Oh, it's not working. What? Ah, oh, my fucking buzzer. It's. Yeah. Sorry, man. Are you cool to come in the back way? Uh. Sure. You can't just meet me down here with it? Honestly, I would, man, but my cat is gonna run out the minute I open the door, and I gotta keep her in. Uh, okay. Sure. What is, uh, around back? Yeah, the back door isn't locked. <laughs> it's so dumb. Okay. Yeah, sure. Alright, I'll call you back. Nah, just, just stay on the line, in case you don't get in, or can't find it. Mark... Or not, I don't care, man. Totally. Call me back, then. No. No, okay. Yeah, 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 that's fine. Okay. Uh, which side is easiest? The left. Just go around the left side. Okay. So are you working again tomorrow? Yeah. And it was a slow night tonight? Yeah. That's weird for a weekend, right? Sometimes. I don't know. Depends on what's out. Totally. I rent all the time. I'm sure I've seen you there. At work? Probably. Yeah, maybe. You must chat with tons. Mark, I don't, I don't see. It's really dark back here. Yeah, those stupid motion lights—they don't really work well. Okay, but I can't see anything. It's okay. The door is to your left. It's down a set of stairs. Down. What is this? The basement? Yeah, the basement. That's the door they leave open. Uh, I don't know about this. Honestly, you seem nice, but I'm not really comfortable with this. Uh, look, I don't see a way down. I can't really see anything back here, and I, uh... Honestly, I think I'm just gonna jet, if that's cool. Harlan, I'm sorry. Let me... I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not. I'm just... You know, I look, think I'm good. I'll come down, okay? I'll give you the book right at the front door. Cool? <sighs> yeah, okay. Listen, I'm leaving the apartment right now.
Yeah, okay. I'll come back, I guess. Cool. Look, that took no time. I'm here now. Okay. Sorry. Sorry about the cat. I'll see you in a oh, second. Oh, damn. I forgot your book. Oh, I'm, I'm coming back I'll now. I'll go grab it quick. Right. Okay, I'm at the door now. Mark. Mark? Hey! Hey, I'm at the door. It's still shut. No, I left it ajar. It should be open. Just push. Oh. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. Oh, good. I was like, oh, no, do I have to run up again? <laughs> so you coming back down? Hey, man, I really would appreciate if you came up. My cats just practically bolted out. Cats? How many do you got? Three, actually. Oh. Yeah. You made it sound like you only had the one. No, no, I love them. Okay. 309. Yeah. Stairs easiest? Yep. Okay. I'll, uh, I guess I'll talk to you in a second. Hold on. What? I want to show you something. What? Don't hang up yet. I want to show you something. Mark, man, I... No, it's fine. It's nothing scary. Okay. Keep going up the stairs. Man, I... Keep going. Mark. Are you on the second floor yet? I don't know. Yeah, basically. Are you or aren't you? I am. Look down the hall. Okay. Are you looking? Yeah. Do you see anything? No. Just wait. Mark, I don't see anything. I don't really want it. Mark? Mark! Hello? Did you see him? Mark, I don't know what that was about. Keep the book. I don't want any more. Don't call me again, okay? Okay? Don't worry. He saw you. I deleted the number. It turned out the building was abandoned. I don't know who the fuck it was, but... Ever since then... I've always felt like someone was looking over my shoulder, watching. Boo! Ah! <laughs> Jesus, fuck. I didn't even hear you guys. What the hell took you so long? Sorry, old Kevin here thought he could find a quicker way than the suggested route. I will continue to support the good fight by using MapQuest. Hey, y'all. Hey, guys. Hey. Yeah, hey. I didn't hear the story, but we caught the tail end of it. 
Jesus, this place is perfect. Well, you missed a good one. Sort of. Uh, grab a seat. On the floor? Yes, Sean. So, the deal is as discussed. We all go around telling spooky stories. More or less. Okay. Well, who's up next? Dylan, this is all your venture. Regale us, why don't you? Alright. Story time. So, here's a strange thing about me that not everybody knows. I really like to go camping in the woods alone. Completely alone. Deep forest, quote-unquote, backwoods camping. Which is what people normally think of when they think of camping. No campgrounds, build your own fire pit, poop in a hole, stuff like that. Most of my friends think that it's too scary to be off the grid like that, which is fine because I don't want them to come with me, that's sort of the point. It's not that off the grid. It's a short hike back to my car, and then a 20-minute drive and you're at a gas station. Civilization is everywhere. I'm only pretending to have escaped it. People sometimes ask me if I'm scared of getting attacked by animals. No, not really. There aren't any wolves or bears where I go camping. Raccoons and feral cats smell cooked food over the fire and try to steal it, which is annoying, but not especially dangerous. Man has fended for himself against the ravages of nature for 250,000 years, and for most of that time, none of them owned a machete. I own a machete. I think I can handle a possum if it gets too close to my tent. I like to get out in the woods at least once a year for a few days. It's nicest when it's fall, and the temperatures are generally within tolerable levels for hiking in the day and sleeping at night, but before daylight savings time ends and it starts to get dark at 5pm. So one might even say that the story that I'm about to tell you happened on a night just like tonight. Ooh, that's a coincidence though. Or is it? Yes, it is. It was two or three years ago, pretty much to the day. I headed out to somewhere that I had been before, inside of a national forest that allows backwoods camping. I tend to go to the same few places every time, because I found places that I know that I can be completely alone. I know where I can go and not see another living human being until I decide to leave. That's one of the purest forms of freedom that there is. Freedom from perception. Hell is other people and all that. I could do literally anything that I wanted to in that forest and no one would ever know unless I told them. I make a habit of never telling anyone what I do in the forest. I mean, how many things that are central to your life are just yours? Things that nobody else knows about. It makes me feel in control to have that side of myself that nobody will ever learn about. Maybe it's a totally benign side. Maybe I'm just hanging out in the forest reading Henry David Thoreau. But only I know, and that is exactly how I like it. I had set up camp and everything was going smoothly. I arrived in the afternoon, and by the time I had set up my tent, dug a latrine, and built a fire pit, it was already getting dark. I gathered firewood, made a fire, and roasted a hot dog over it. Everything was off to a good, but very normal start. No bad omens. Did you know that over 90% of deaths are caused by ignoring bad omens? Look it up, it's true. It wasn't until I got in my tent to go to sleep that something began to feel... off. Normally there are a lot of sounds in the night. Rustling, tree branches snapping, coyotes howling. It was a clear night. The nocturnal animals should have been out and about, eating and drinking and fighting each other. It felt eerie. It felt like a cue from everything else in the forest that something was wrong. Before I could make up my mind whether I should get up, find my machete in my pack, and go see if I could investigate what was causing the notable lack of commotion in the forest, or hide in my tent and hope that whatever it was wasn't concerned with eating or fighting me, I finally heard a sound. Like that. Not a pleasant return to the nocturnal status quo, but rather something much more akin to a door knocking. 
If you aren't familiar, the middle of the forest is renowned for its complete lack of doors. A demand side problem, plenty of wood but no one to walk through one. That knowledge, coupled with the heretofore silent forest, I came to the conclusion that something dangerous was likely going on. I did, in fact, exit my tent and locate my machete in my pack. That is when I heard the sound a second time. The sound was strange, not only because it sounded like knocking on a door, but because it was difficult to triangulate exactly where it was coming from. It didn't reverberate like it was a long way away. It seemed like it should be within eyesight, though it wasn't, after much searching with a headlamp. If I wanted to track it down, I don't think I would have been able to choose what direction to go. I decided that if anything were to be a bad omen, it would be something like this, and a pleasant getaway into the forest could be rescheduled for later. I could come back for the tent. Machete in hand, headlamp on head, and pack on my back, I immediately made my way through the dark, beginning my hike back to the car. The knocking did not stop or change in volume. It felt the same distance away as before. I searched the forest frantically as I walked, hoping to find and avoid whatever was the cause of the noise. The walk was a breezy 30-minute hike in the afternoon, but felt daunting and gruelingly long in the darkness. It felt like I was never going to get there. The knocking seemed to be picking up in frequency, though I wasn't sure. I didn't get the chance to determine if the knocking was happening more frequently before I walked straight into a large black door, like the door of a house. Between frantically looking around and how dark it was, I hadn't seen it until I collided with it. When I did, I thought it was a tree. When it occurred to me what I was looking at, I immediately jumped back in fear. The door was strangely ornate. There wasn't an inch of it that wasn't carved with some abstract figure. Even the doorknob, which was shiny and golden, was carved this way. It was singular, unattached to a house or to anything else. It was simply a door, upright even without a frame, but not set in the ground either, standing in the middle of the forest. The sound continued. It was not louder. Instead, it felt appropriate. What I heard matched what I saw, knocking on a door from only a few feet away. It definitely was knocking more frequently, though. Being that close, I could hear something else. A guttural, chaotic yell, somewhere between a scream and a shout, coming from the other side of the door. It wasn't shouting help or let me out or any other discernible words. I couldn't tell whether it was a person or an animal. I say the other side of the door, but as I said, this was a freestanding door with nothing on either side of it. But where else could it be coming from? It certainly sounded as if the sound was coming from the other side of the door. This put me at a crossroads. I was concerned that there was a person on the other side of this door, which appeared to be some sort of preternatural phenomenon. Whatever was on the other side appeared to be in great distress. There was a possibility that it was a human being in there, alone, in a place where no one but myself would ever find it. I had chosen this place in order to not be found, after all. If it were a person, and I declined to open the door, no one would ever save him. I would essentially be sentencing someone to whatever the other side of the door had to offer, something that they did not seem to be enjoying. The knocking continued as I stood there. I was transfixed by the door. You'll notice that I didn't run away when I found it. I did not feel compelled to. I was fascinated by it, whether that was due to my own curiosity or something else. This is how I was able to entertain the idea of opening the door instead of fleeing in the name of self-preservation, which is what I had even been in the process of doing when I bumped into the door in the first place. That is not to say that I was unafraid, I was trembling. If anything was going to stop me from opening the door, it would be fear causing me to lack the dexterity to get it open. The rapping and shouting continued. I readied my machete, stood as far to the side as I possibly could while still being able to open the door, 
took a deep breath, hesitated, took a second deep breath, stalled a bit, double-readied my machete, and opened the door. A large fist barged through the open air with an accompanying howl. The fist was about the size of my head, dark with fur. I leapt away from the fist as the arm and body accompanying it spilled out of the doorway, thrown off balance by trying to knock on a door that was no longer there. Looking through the doorway, I could see a different forest. Though dark, I could tell that the vegetation wasn't the same as the vegetation native to where I was. This was somewhere else. I looked down at the form that had fallen through the doorway. It was not a man. It was a bipedal animal covered in long, dark fur. It looked up at me and I could see its large yellow eyes reflecting back at me, with enormous canine teeth protruding from its lower jaw. It scrambled to its feet. It was at least ten feet tall, though, recollecting it, it might have been as tall as fifteen. It was broad, too. It took up an enormous amount of space. After it stood up, it looked down at me for a moment. I stared back at it. We stood in silence, watching each other for a long time, maybe a few minutes. I didn't say anything. It didn't say anything. It did not seem to want to fight or eat me. I did keep my machete pointed at it the whole time. I noticed that its fur was matted around its mouth with what appeared to be dried blood. Eventually, it turned and began to move into the forest, back in the direction of my tent. It moved much quieter and faster than I would like something like that to move. I looked back at the doorway. There was nothing there anymore, just more of the forest that I was in. I looked at the door. It was swung open perpendicular to its starting point. I grabbed the knob again, this time from the opposite side of the door. It would not move. It did not behave like a locked door. It did not rattle or budge in any way. It could not be moved at all, no matter how much force I applied. Soon after that, my survival instinct overpowered my curiosity. I began to run as fast as I could to my car, running headlong into an actual tree in the process and earning myself a black eye. The creature didn't harm me, but the forest did, ironically enough. One eternity later, I made it to my car and did not stop driving until I was home. Well, I got McDonald's on the way home, but after that it was straight home. Thirty-five people have gone missing in the forest since then, with no clue as to what is causing this ongoing rash of disappearances. Considering how few people go into that forest, I can't help but wonder if that's everyone that entered after me. I don't know whether I think the creature or the door is responsible. I have not been back to that particular forest, though I have not stopped camping in forests alone. I never got my tent back, which sucks because it was a good tent. It was a ten-person tent, which means that it comfortably fits three. That's the real horror. That $400 I'll never get back. Whew. Holy shit. <laughs> Ooh, holy shit. I can honestly say I didn't expect that from you. I am... Impressed. What about you, Sean? You look like you got a story in you. Well, um, not something I expected to be saying tonight, but, uh, you know I nearly ended up in a place like this when I was younger. Seriously? Really? Yeah. <laughs> they, um, they call it being sectioned in the UK. So my brother and his family had moved house recently. They'd been able to buy their own place after years of renting. It was an old terraced house, one just like many others in the street. He'd asked me to babysit one night. My brother, that is. So I agree. I mean, easy, right? The kid's only five years old and he'll be in bed when I get there. Simple. Watch TV. Chill out until my brother gets home. Sure. It's a pretty cold autumn night, so I've got the fire going. And I'm just drifting off into a cosy, warm sleep. When I hear the stairs creak and the door begin to open. My nephew is standing there. He just looks blankly at me and says, Uncle Shawnee, the broken man is here. I instantly broke into a cold sweat. For some reason, whenever a kid says something like that, especially at night, it is ten times creepier than an adult saying it. Of course, I've got to play the uh, mature and rational adult here, so uh, 
Can't go letting him get scared, otherwise he'll never leave me alone. Jack, I say. Jack, you were just dreaming. Go back to bed. But he's upstairs, Shawnee. I can't sleep when he's there. He's so loud. I'm sure at this point Jack can see the colour drain from my face. I know he's talking complete rubbish, but I just can't help but be slightly terrified. Right, I'll come upstairs with you and we'll make sure no one is there, okay? Then you can go back to sleep. Sound like a plan? Okay, he replies. And this is when I realise how much of a daze he's in. There's no way he's been awake longer than a few minutes. Definitely a dream. Definitely. So I take him upstairs. We search around a bit and then I tuck him into bed. His nightlight has stopped working, so I leave the landing light on for him. I head back downstairs, feeling a little rattled, but I know it's just a child in his imagination. I'm chilling in the kitchen, waiting for the toaster to pop, when the thing starts crackling and sparks leap out from it. After a moment of panic, I reach for the plug and yank it out as fast as I possibly can. Probably not the wisest idea, but I didn't know what else to do in the moment. Trust me to go and break something the first time I'm at my brother's new house. Once I've cleaned it up, I head back to the front room and the door to the staircase is open. I'm sure I shut it. In fact, I'm positive I shut it. The light from the landing kept flickering a little and it was really irritating me. I'm sure I closed that door. No matter. I'll shut it now. Except, I can't. It won't click into the latch. It won't close. It won't do anything. I try and try and it won't. It looks like the hinges have buckled out of the frame and they're stopping it from shutting properly. Were they always like that? I give up at this point. I'm convinced if I touch anything else, I'm just going to mess it up. I grab my book out of my bag, put my glasses on and set to reading. Keep it simple. They'll be back soon. Jack! I shout. Stop whistling and go to sleep. It's late. Seriously, your dad is going to be so annoyed at you when he finds out you wouldn't go to sleep. I can't believe he's doing this. Just as I start reading as well. I march up the stairs, stamping my feet so that he knows I mean business. And the stairs are creaking so much and he's still whistling even when I get to the top. But when I do get to the top, the light suddenly goes out. My heart is immediately in my throat. My ears are pounding with it. But it's not completely dark. Coming from the slightly ajar door of Jack's room is this dim blue light. His nightlight. And a shadow that I thought was nothing moves from hunched to stud. So tall. And a heavy metallic clang and I'm horribly aware that Jack might not be alone in his room. I push my fear aside as much as I can and I burst into the room. It's empty. His bed is empty and there's no one there. No giant shadow. No Jack. Uncle Shawnee, where are you? I hear from behind me and down the stairs. Jack! Jack, stay right there! I grab the door to leave and hear that clanging sound again. Foolishly, I can't help but glance back into the room and for the briefest second, I swear, there's someone stood right in front of me. 
but almost immediately the left lens of my glasses cracks and a piece splinters off slicing into my skin narrowly missing my eye. Blood starts pouring freely down my face and the nightlight flickers then goes out. I'm suddenly plunged into darkness and I hear Jack again shouting my name. I throw my glasses on the floor and run for the stairs clutching at my eye. As I'm pounding down the stairs, my ankle cracks and my leg gives way completely. I slam into the staircase head first and plummet straight to the bottom. I remember lying there, head on the floor, legs still on the bottom two steps and the warm flow of blood soaking my face. My ankle throbbing. And that's when I hear the hammer strike again and a quiet whistling get louder and louder as the stairs creak like footsteps coming down. I'm completely prone, in a helpless heap, my body aching with pain all over. And I'm paralysed with the pain and the fear. Then the footsteps stop, followed by a mocking voice so quietly in my ear. Now you're broken too. The next thing I know, my brother is opening the front door, and I'm still sat in the same position I curled up in at the bottom of the stairs. He said I just kept mumbling to myself, in a whisper, over and over again. My ankle was broken. I had concussion and I needed stitches above my left eye. I was in a bad way. When my brother came to visit me in hospital, he said apparently Jack didn't remember a thing and slept through the whole night. Said he had no idea who the broken man was. And then he started questioning me. So annoyed, wanting to know how I damaged so many things without knowing it. I told him it wasn't me, that I did nothing other than try to protect Jack. He just looked at me. So incredulous. When my parents arrived, I overheard them whispering to the doctors about a mental breakdown or something. They thought I couldn't hear them, but I could. For the rest of the day I felt so ashamed, until the evening, as the light faded and my shame gave way to fear. In that darkened room, a shadow loomed over the hospital bed, accompanied by a slow whistling, and then a voice in my ear said, Even if they fix you, You'll always be the broken man. Nope, I'm out. Oh, shit. Jesus, fuck. Okay, yeah, but there's no way that actually happened, right? Hey, all of these actually happened. That's the deal, right? Now, who wants to follow that one? (laughs) I think I have one. Hey, fuck yeah. Floor's yours. My cousin's husband told me this story about his mom's neighbor's kid. I think it went something like this. Somewhere in New York or San Francisco or Tokyo, there's a skyscraper topped with a glistening pool that seems to stretch on into the ocean. Those who find their way to that building are few. Those allowed to touch the water's edge even fewer. But those who do, the few who fall into the chlorine baptismal are granted a prophecy, a vision of their own death. Michael was sure he was going to die. He couldn't pin down exactly how or when, but deep down he knew it. Someone had it out for him. 
No, not just anyone. His business partner, Alex, wanted him dead. Michael and Alex founded the company, shared 50-50 ownership. Alex wanted to take it in a new direction, while Michael was obstinate in keeping the company on its current path. The two couldn't come to terms and neither would sell their shares, which left. Michael was sure Alex knew about the pool. It was the whisper of the exclusive realm that Michael and Alex traveled in. He was sure Alex had alluded to it in the past, if only cryptically, in passing. If others knew about the pool, Michael assumed it would be hard to book a reservation. How could anyone pass up the opportunity? If Michael could find the pool and see what was in store for him, he could figure out Alex's plot, outwit his partner and former friend, and prevent his assassination. Could his death be averted once seen in the pool? Only one way to find out. Paranoid thinking doesn't befit a serious man of business like Michael, yet here he was, frantically throwing shirts and ties into his suitcase. Alex knew where Michael lived. He couldn't sleep at home, too easy to catch him unprepared. He'd have to rent a hotel suite. Wait, no, too obvious. A motel room, then. Nondescript, paid-in-cash, fake name. Sweating under the inadequate sputter of the motel room's window unit, Michael scoured the internet for the pool. He found useful slivers here and there. The vanity of those who run in these circles let clues slip through all kinds of cracks. He put on a shabbiest outfit. Michael Kors chinos, a $90 black t-shirt, and leather onitsukas instead of his usual Yohei Fukudas. He brushed his hair back under a ball cap donned his shades and slipped anonymously into the muggy sunrise. Michael wasn't sure exactly what he was looking for, but figured, like pornography or poverty, he'd know it when he saw it. Through the beaming metal refractions of Lower Manhattan or London or Seoul, Michael crept, trying to blend in with the rabble. His head swiveled back and forth across the street, building to building, sweat beating under his brim. He felt the eyes of the city loom over him, like an oil lamp swaying precariously on a hook. Any one of these people could be Alex's chosen hitman. Or maybe Alex would finally have the guts to do something himself. Either way, Michael was sure he was running out of time. The terrors that lurk in the disused corners of our reality often find subtle ways of revealing themselves at first. Something off about the gleam of metal siding, something stirring behind the glass a little too quickly. Michael stood in the harsh shadow of the nondescript building that reached hot and sharp into the sun. He felt nauseous just looking at it, but compelled to move closer. The swarm of marching blazers parted around him as he cut across the sidewalk to approach the building's entrance. No one went in, no one came out, no one even seemed to notice its existence. No one but him. Michael was sure this was the one. He entered the building as if tumbling down a hill, pulled by some external force, as much inertia as intention. Inside, Michael saw nothing. The entire ground floor was devoid of people, just a few chairs and a desk in the unlit foyer. It had a kind of hollowness that doesn't assert itself through sight or sound, but feeling, in the icy sensation working its way up his arm. In a city like this, at a time like this, it was rare to see a place so empty, uncanny. Michael crept through that dark space looking for light, but it seemed as if the whole building had been cut off from the electrical grid, a dead tower in the middle of the city, 
slowly infecting the surrounding tissue. Michael scoured the foyer, even feeling the walls for door handles where the plume of sunlight leaking through the windows couldn't reach its grubby fingers. Eventually, hand met handle, and he twisted the knob. Beyond was a stairwell, just barely illuminated by a skylight far above him. Michael was through with sneaking, and so he took the stairs in frenzied bounds. How many floors he passed, he couldn't say. An anxious, dripping ball of nerves was all that remained of him when he reached the door to the roof. He slammed into the push bar and the heavy slab creaked open. The glare of the full afternoon sun pelted him. He raised his hands to shield himself from the onslaught. And there, Michael found his oasis. Beams of light from on high glimmered on the water's surface. Chromatic reflections bounced all around the rooftop, gently swaying. Surrounding the pool were a variety of potted plants, all long leaves and curved edges, forming pockets of inviting shade. The lapping of the waves called to him, an infinite sea that sprawled out beyond the building, beyond the city, melting perfectly into the horizon. It was idyllic, everything he'd hoped it would be, save for one detail. There were two figures standing at the edge of the pool. Dressed all in glaring white, they were hard for Michael to look at. He took a step closer to the pool and tried to focus his eyes on the figures. He wordlessly moved toward them. Blinding spotless in the sun, he could make out their general shape. Humanoids, somewhere between five and six feet tall. But their faces, he couldn't see their faces at all. Like wisps of pure sunlight flowed from their skin and obscured their features. Michael dipped one foot into the pool and then the other. He felt that pull again, as if he were on the cusp of a gravity well. He closed his eyes, spread his arms wide, and fell face first into the cool water. Michael drifted in the fathomless ocean for a moment, untethered from all things material. He flipped and spun in the freeform body, curled and retracted. He settled himself and opened his eyes to receive his vision. Michael saw two figures in white leaning over the pool's edge, but there was someone else there as well. Michael was sure it was Alex. An arm framed by gold cufflinks broke the surface and held Michael in place underwater. He thrashed and kicked and struggled against the hand, but his shoes couldn't find purchase on the slick walls of the pool. If only he had been wearing his facudas. This was how he was going to die. As Michael's thrashing slowed, Alex withdrew his arm from the pool and stood triumphant over his former business partner. He nodded to the inscrutable figures in white and turned to leave. But it was Alex's turn now. The figures clasped each of his shoulders with tremendous force and led him slowly into the water. His screams were quickly muted, rendered nothing more than noisy bubbles. Then, those bubbles came to a halt. Alex and Michael locked eyes beneath the surface one last time before they fully slipped from this earth. A mutually assured destruction. Fifty-fifty. The figures in white rose from the pool, not a drop on them, their faces glowing and radiant. Michael and Alex were rich, yes, powerful, sure, but there are others even beyond them. Beings who exist in a totally separate realm from those two. Beings who repel water and consequence in equal measure. Wealth so concentrated, so dense it warps the fabric of space and bends light. To sustain such a life requires sacrifice a great many souls to stoke the engine 
Somewhere in Chicago or Shanghai or Frankfurt, there's a skyscraper topped with a swimming pool that seems to go on forever. Those who find their way to that building are few, those allowed to touch the water's edge even fewer. But those who do are not granted a vision of what's to come, they simply see what is. Only death waits for those who enter the water, and it won't be waiting long. Did that really happen? That was creepy. Oh my god. Wow, man. Damn. <laughs> oh. Alright. Now we're cooking. If we're going in order. I guess it's my turn now. Here we go. <clears throat> Submitted for the approval of the midnight. Do what do we call ourselves? <laughs> do we have like a group name or something? It doesn't matter. I call this story The Tale of the One Through Five Minute Man. Really dumb name, I know, just bear with me. Growing up in my childhood home, I always felt like there was something off about the place. Now, I'm going to sound like one of those crunchy granola people that collect crystals or something, but the energy in the house just felt bad. I just always felt uneasy. Like I was never truly alone. It started when I was just a little kid. One night, I stumbled into my mom's room at around 2 a.m. Mom? He's in my room. What? She said. He's in my room again. The man. What man? The man who comes into my room at night for one to five minutes. Now, I don't know why I was so specific with the timing when I was a kid, but it was that word that I said. Again. He was in my room again. Who was this man? What did he want with me? After that, every time I would try to sleep in my room, I would wake up in this weird, excruciating pain. I wasn't sure what it was, but it felt like my legs were burning. My mom said it was probably growing pains. I just thought it was because my bed was uncomfortable and it was making my body sore. So, I refused to sleep in there. I slept on the living room couch for probably three years until my mom finally caved and bought me a new mattress. In those years, I felt fine. I didn't experience any more random pain. When the mattress finally came in and I was back in my room, things started to get weird again. One day I was in my room just laying on my bed watching TV and I started dozing off. You know when you feel yourself about to fall asleep and you suddenly have that terrifying feeling that you're falling and you scare yourself awake? That happened to me. But I woke up on the floor in the corner of my room near the door. Almost like I flew off of the bed or something. 
I was convinced for years that it was just a weird case of sleepwalking. But then similar things just kept on happening. There are so many times when I would just fall asleep in my bed like normal and then wake up in the morning laying the opposite way. Again, this can easily just be explained by sleepwalking. It seems like a perfectly valid explanation until something that happened to me recently. Now, this is something that I haven't told anyone in my family. For some reason, whenever I bring up any sort of occurrence at the house, they just don't want to hear it. I was laying in my room late one night, half asleep, and I began to hear things. I assumed it was just in my head or the sounds of the house settling or something, and then I felt it. Something grabbed me and was pulling me towards the door. When this happened, my eyes shot open and I saw... I saw... It. At the foot of my bed, there was this... shadow figure just standing there with his hands grasping around my ankles. I couldn't move. I couldn't scream. I've never experienced sleep paralysis before, but I was sure that this wasn't it. This felt too... real. This thing has its hands on me and my legs were... burning. The pain must have taken over and I weighed the fear because I managed to open my mouth and let some words out. What are you? What do you want? I asked, dreading whatever the response would be. It just stood there for what felt like minutes until it released one of its hands and slowly raised it up and extended a finger. It was pointing directly at me. It wanted me. In a panic, I quickly reached for my phone and turned the flashlight on to try and get a better look. When I turned back to it with the phone, whatever it was disappeared the instant the light would have touched it. Next thing I know, it's morning. I'm sure it was just a dream. But it felt so real. It felt too real. I moved out as soon as I could after that. And that's my story. Everything's been pretty quiet for me since I moved into my new place. For the most part. It hasn't been as easy for my fiance. She told me that she doesn't really like it in the new place. She feels like she's being watched. And she swears that she's been seeing something out of the corner of her eye in the shadows. She's trying to convince me that it's already time to move. And she's been waking up with some leg pain lately. Wow, dude. Whew. Okay, so 
Who's next? Well, damn. <sighs> Damn's right. Jeremy, why don't you regale us, my friend? Well, since Nathan's here too, what do you think about that time we went up to the old Richfield Manor? Really? That's the story you want to tell? I mean, why not? It has all the hallmarks of a good campfire, or spooky hospital tale. The story sucks. So is there a key, or do we just... Oh, it wasn't even shut. You know, a traditional ghostly door opening by itself wouldn't have been unappreciated. You're going to be tough to please, aren't you? Sorry, I'll try to suspend my disbelief for the evening. It'd be appreciated. Oh, before I forget, here, take this. A stick? A smudge stick, yeah. We light it and use the smoke for protection, given the circumstances of the haunting here. The sage should help keep us safe. Sage? Okay. Fights mosquitoes and ghosts. Who knew? Perfect. We want to make it smoke a little, just like that. Keep it with you at all times. Remember, it's for our safety. Got it. So, how does this EMF thing work? It's been observed that there's a higher amount of electromagnetic frequency present when there's also paranormal activity. These devices will read that frequency, which gives us a good spot to set up shop. Oh, uh, actually, I just meant how do you turn it on? There's a switch on the side. Ah, got it. Now, I only have enough equipment to monitor a couple rooms, so we'll have to be conservative and really pick the best spots. I already think I know what one of them will be, but we'll see. There. That's what we're looking for. Set up the mic in the middle of the room. I'll get the cameras over there. So, what happened? What do you mean? Well, the place is haunted, so there has to be some sort of tragic backstory, right? That's actually a misconception. Really, just any unresolved emotional turmoil surrounding their death can cause a haunting. That residual energy then becomes localized to a particular area. Basically, it doesn't have to be a violent murder at all. So, what happened? A violent murder. Of course. Details? Back in the 70s, Michael Richfield was known for two things. Reclusiveness and hosting extravagant parties. On October 31st, 1979, he threw the largest Halloween party anyone had ever seen. Everyone was having a blast in their various masks and costumes. After a while, people started noticing the party had thinned out much earlier than expected. Almost right away, people had been disappearing, one by one. When enough partygoers took notice, they started searching the place. This place is pretty sizable. Lots of rooms, doors, and locks. The story goes that Richfield would lock the doors when a handful of people entered a room and shut off the lights. Then he would approach them in the dark. They could barely make out his face, but it wasn't his face. He was wearing the face of someone they knew had gone missing. Accounts of how he dispatched them vary from there. Some say he slit their throats with a knife. Some say he chopped them up with an axe. However he did it, he managed to maintain enough stealth so that the only thing that exited those doors was the river of blood from his victims. Okay, but if he killed everyone, then how do we know what happened at the party? He confessed. Ah, just as I expected. The study. Same setup as before for the mics. Seriously, how did they get a confession? When the police finally arrived, they found Richfield's body slumped on the desk. In his study. That desk. He had offed himself and was wearing someone else's face over his own. In front of him was a letter, 
written in blood from the bodies piled around him. Did you feel that? What? I thought... Never mind. Are you finished? Yep. Mic on. All set. All right, let's get out of here. Don't forget your smudge stick. Got it. So, what'd you feel? It just seemed like... I don't know. Something about that room. You want to go ahead and fire up the electric generator? I'll start hooking up the monitors. Fine, then. Don't tell me. Damn it. What? One of the mics isn't giving me any signal. Don't tell me. It's the one in the study. Of course it is. Are you sure the power light came on? I... I don't know, man. I'm usually in bed, like, four hours ago. Eastern time, remember? You want me to go back and fix it, don't you? I mean... No, no, I get it. Hype up how creepy one room is, then send the new guy in, alone, to check it out. You don't have to. We'll just hope we don't miss anything. In the room that's most likely to have a ghost in it. So, we're just gonna split up. In a haunted house. (sighs) Fine. Did you at least bring walkie-talkies, or are we gonna rely on our cell phones that will inevitably experience a service failure at a critical moment? You're with a pro, remember? Here, catch. You'll be fine. Just make sure you have your smudge stick. I'll let you know when I'm getting the audio again. Maybe Jeremy the character isn't as different as Jeremy the person after all. If you're too scared of ghosts, I can take care of it. Nathan? Yeah, I'm here. Just trying to think of a good comeback. Coming up empty so far. (laughs) You see the study yet? Okay, I have you on cam. Is that really necessary? Sometimes the classic comebacks are the best. Just take care of the mic and... Shit. Nathan, I just lost the camera. Nathan? If you can hear me, can you please say something? Boo. Fuck. Why weren't you answering? Answering what? Never mind. The audio's still dead and nothing's feeding from the camera either now. Hey, I didn't touch the camera. (sighs) I know. But I really want to record that study. We may as well head back together and get it all fixed. So, Jeremy, you like to party? Huh? I mean, that's what happened here, right? Exactly 40 years ago? Oh, yeah. The bloodbath. Yeah, that's not really my scene. Parties, I mean. Well, or bloodbaths. How about you? They can be fun. Can you check the mic again? I'll take a look at the camera, but it's weird that neither of them is... Jesus! Okay, you can't tell me you didn't see that. Your first undeniable paranormal event. Where's your sage? Huh? Oh, I must have left it in the other room. Damn it, Nathan. We need to get out of here then. What about the equipment? Leave it. We need to go right now if you aren't protected. We'll come back for it in the morning. How do you propose we leave? Damn it. Okay, just stick close to me. I'm going to let the smoke saturate the wood of the door. Hopefully that'll let us break through. Stuff smells awful. Trust me, it's better than the alternative. Okay, on the count of three, we're going to push against the door together. Uh, Jeremy? Shit. Okay, on one. One. Run! We got to the car and I drove Nathan back to his hotel. I think he came away with a little less skepticism. Am I right? That's what you think happened? That's what I remember. Do you remember something differently? Everything was like you said. 
up until I went back to the study to check on the mic. Okay, I handle mics all the time. This should be... Oh, fucking A. No batteries. Seriously, Jeremy? Yo, Jeremy, you fall asleep over there? Jeremy, come on, I know that's you. And of course it's locked. What the hell is that? Hey, Jeremy, I know you're busy messing with me or whatever, but can you see this? There's something on the floor... glowing, kind of, I guess. It's, um, crimson-colored. I think it's coming up from the desk. Okay, think, Nathan. What would Jeremy do? <laughs> well, he'd probably touch it. Okay, so whatever I do, don't touch it. Jeremy, tell me you can see the... Did it? Oh, shit, it's moving. Okay, for real, Jeremy, open up. Seriously, this shit's weird. There's this vein-like stuff on the floor and... Fucking veins, Jeremy, you hear me? Did I bump the channel on this thing or... No. Fuck. Okay. How can I get out? What the fuck? Okay. You know what? I don't even care. Okay, what the hell? The stairs were right here. Right? Maybe... No. No, maybe. Um, I'll just retrace my steps to the study and... Maybe when I come back, it'll be there. Shit. That stuff is definitely bigger than it was before. Did it? It, it destroyed the mic. Oh, fuck. Okay. Stairs or no stairs, door or window, I'm getting out of here before this thing spreads any further. This doesn't add up. This place was big, but this hallway should have ended here. It's like this place is fucking... Okay. Don't say it. Ghosts aren't real. You just passed the stairs and were too panicked to notice. Okay. If I can just calm down and breathe for a minute. There. Okay. Now I just need to go back and... Oh, what the fuck? It's everywhere! It's all over the walls and it's fucking breathe. And the next thing I remember was waking up in my hotel room. So wait, you don't remember coming back? Us getting in the car? None of that? Never happened. I don't know how you saw what you saw. It's... I don't know. Almost like someone was wearing your face. <laughs> oh, oh shit. Holy oh, shit. Fuck. Damn. That's fucked up. All right. Okay, my turn. Let me show you how it's done, everybody. I've got a story that's sure to terrify every single one of you. Something that'll make your skin crawl and have you shaking in your boots. Oh, good God, what was that? That was a rat. Yeah, I knew that. Anyways, as I was saying, a few years ago, public access television was struggling. I mean, they're still struggling, but it was more of a fight against the dying light sort of situation for them back then. Now they're just dead in the water and looking for a lifeboat. I mean, that's mostly all cable television though, right? But especially peg channels. You know, public access, education, and government channels. I guess their aim at the time was to create intrigue around our own local version of PBS. Except it didn't go exactly how I imagined they thought it would. I was driving into work that day. A nice long drive from the suburbs into town, spotted traffic as I went. Well, that day, I can't remember exactly what day it was, sometime towards the end of October. I'd fallen asleep in a weird half-sitting position on the couch in front of the television, dog-tired from a particularly long day and hadn't plugged in my phone to charge it. So, getting into the car, rushing, making sure I wouldn't be late, I had no time to charge my phone. <sighs> God, I need some noise. 
the veil between our world and the next has fallen. Tune in to PCBS at 10 p.m. tonight to witness proof of the afterlife. Watch in astonishment as Dr. Nichols proves once and for all that there is life after death. Tonight on PCBS, here and there are as close as then and now, as are close as you and I. I didn't pay much attention to it. I barely even remember the advertisement at all, but by the time I got into the office, most folks were talking about it, either laughing it off or seriously interested and intrigued. Despite their initial excitement, the usual inertia of the day took hold and mostly no one was talking about it as we shuffled out of the office. When I got home that night, I was so tired. I thought perhaps I'd take a nap and tune into PCBS, maybe get something to laugh and joke about in the office the next day. You know, same way half of us do with sports. Watch the last 10 minutes of a hockey game so you can pretend at lunch it was a nail-biter, or talk about the decision to pull the goalie blah 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 office talk, right? I still had a couple hours until Dr. Nichols' segment aired, so I stepped into the kitchen, opened the refrigerator, and started putting together hodgepodge dinner. Honestly, I just settled on mac and cheese. I was too tired to cook anything else. Grabbing my dinner, I took it to the couch, threw my bowl of underwhelming mac and cheese onto the coffee table, kicked up my feet while it cooled, nestled my head in between the cushions, and felt all the tension of the day leave my neck. While I turned on the television. There was nothing on, so I turned to PCBS. I don't remember ever watching PCBS growing up. I suppose I was curious what else they aired. Well, the answer is not much. They had an hour-long program called Walking, and you guessed it, I sat on my couch and had the privilege of enjoying a walk through the point of view of a lone cameraman, no talking, no commercials, just walking. It didn't take long for me to doze off. I slept through most of what would be quite the infamous public broadcasting segment. Dr. Nichols eventually came on and from what I'm told performed a series of thought experiments. You've probably seen them on YouTube or TikTok before, where they ask you green or blue, down or up, name a vegetable, and then they correctly guess the vegetable and say carrot, and you gasp in mild astonishment. Those kinds of thought experiments. Well, I personally slept through the damn thing, so I don't know exactly what it was all about, but a co-worker told me, quite reluctantly, that the questions and answers started off cheesy. Like the carrot guess. But then Dr. Nichols asked the audience to imagine a shape. And each word he spoke would be a corresponding plot point in the shape. And each plot point was connected to the previous plot by a thin imaginary line. And imagine each thread is held by another person watching and listening to the beeps. And imagine now that they're all pulling their thread further to the right. And you need to pull it further to the left, or vice versa. And now imagine that in between those two points of here and there. Imagine nothing at all. A hole. And now imagine that person, which holds the other end of your imaginary thread as you fight to place your points as they pile up, as you fight, give one gigantic pull, and you fall into the hole. But you hold tight to the imaginary thread, and pull everyone else in with you. It made little sense to anyone, but it was unsettling. I personally woke up in the final moments of the segment. 
The screen was black and they were playing a series of beeps like Morse code. Whoa, that can't be all. Well, no, it's just so ridiculous it sounds crazy. Well, go on, tell us. The next day we all walked into the office. Same drive, same traffic, but the office was much more quiet. Folks looked tired. I didn't want to ask, I didn't really care, but a friend popped by my cubicle and asked me if I watched Dr. Nichols. Well, I tried, I said, but I fell asleep. He nearly had tears in his eyes. Maybe you'll be fine, he said. Maybe I'll be fine. He walked away from my desk and I was more or less left stewing in my own thoughts. Maybe I'll be fine. What does that mean? Well, long story short, Dr. Nichols' segment on PCBS was weird and no one really understood it and everyone was feeling awfully uneasy. And that's when people started hearing things, seeing things, thinking about being pulled or pulling others into that pit, whispering about what it meant. What was the purpose? I wasn't hearing anything. No, not me. But everyone else was. And seeing things too. Like the whole town was on one never-ending acid trip. Folks started leaving, and those who didn't want to leave started going crazy. Some folks torched their house. I guess in their hysteria it seemed better than asking the ghosts or ghouls or whatever it was they thought was haunting them to go away nicely. I don't know, though, because like I said, I wasn't seeing or hearing anything. Then a sort of sickness settled into town. Like everyone was drained of the will to live and fight and the fear which had been this overwhelming emotion was now just a never-ending state of wide-eyed apathy. But not me. Because I wasn't hearing or seeing anything. And there I was. Somehow the only one not whipped up into a frenzy and I don't really understand what's happening at that point. Even now. Really, I think everyone just got it in their heads that demons had been summoned or that they were being haunted or followed, maybe it was just paranoia. Really, it was just some sort of social experiment or poorly executed avant-garde television program. Then it just evolved into mass hysteria. What was it? Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to say. There wasn't much time to make my mind up one way or the other. Some awfully terrible things happened for two days and then it all began to settle. I got called back into the office after a few days of the doors being locked and then people started to show up again. Then it was really like nothing had ever happened at all. No one spoke about it. It was as if everyone was embarrassed. But then that co-worker came past my desk again and told me that they'd all figured it out. They said they had figured out how to pass it on. I didn't know what he meant by pass it on because, as I said, I most definitely was not seeing or hearing anything. They said Dr. Nichols had done something to everyone, unlocked something, triggered something. It didn't make sense to me, but it terrified them, followed them. They couldn't sleep or eat, and some people never came back to the office and memorials were quietly held during work hours. But they figured out how to pass it on, and that's when he told me how. Actually, hold on a moment. Maybe this will be easier. Let me grab my phone here. And play. I don't get it. I feel like I'm pulling teeth at this point to put this story together. How do you pass it on? 
Oh, I think you already know. Oh. What? Fuck. Oh, shit. <laughs> Whoa. Jesus. I, I don't fucking believe that. Oh. All right. Anyone else want to volunteer to go after that? Um, <laughs> I'll go next. Fuck yeah. Uh, have you all ever heard of, like, these... It was a friend of mine who actually told me about them. He had a similar experience on a hike, but basically they're these things that, when they're close, their call sounds distant. No, no. Cool. My grandparents live in a little town about an hour and a half from mine, if you take the main highway. It was fall reading break of my first ever semester at uni, and I'd made a little solo trip out there just to talk about how school was going and see how retirement was treating them, and I stayed a lot later (laughs) than I'd meant to. It was long since dark by the time we'd kissed cheeks and said goodbyes, and they'd bid me a safe drive home. The highway is double lane, well-traveled at all hours, and passes through a series of small towns that I've always known the names of but never actually been to before it passes into mine. However, if you know your way around the many different paths jutting off into the flat, rolling distance, there's a little unmarked township road that'll cut the trip time in half. Sure, by choosing that road, you're choosing to bypass all other guaranteed signs of life for the next 45 minutes, which, not great if something were to happen, but usually it made for a quiet, straightforward journey. Usually, nothing happened. I debated not taking the shortcut home. I had texted my mom to say I was on my way, but I hadn't said that's the way I'd be taking, and I mean, I had my phone, but it had, like, 3% battery at this point, and long story short, I'd lent one of my sisters my charging cable and still hadn't gotten it back, but anyways, if something bad enough happened, you know. And then I looked at the time again, and I don't remember exactly how late it was, but it was late. Easily after midnight at this point, another hour and a half of driving just made my head hurt and my eyes sting just thinking about it. So, I turned on to the one-lane, bumpy back road stretching out into the darkness. The road itself possessed some kind of strange presence. Something bristling in the distance, something inching through the night. I always thought that even before this happened, but (laughs) at the same time, it was never enough to deter me. In the open darkness like that, you know, where didn't you feel watched? Where didn't you feel like anything could have been on the edges of the fields, nestled in the long grass of the ditches, waiting for you to stray, waiting for you to separate yourself from the little pockets of light and life along the highway chain, and to stumble onto one of those many different routes on the shadowed prairie where it could be hours before another person would find your car, if you were that lucky. I'd only been driving for about 10 or 15 minutes when I saw it. Lights up ahead. A soft glow and two red spots flashing in the void. A car. Pulled over onto the crumbling shoulder, hazards on, and the driver's door just... open. It was a concerning thing to come across. I should have used the rest of my battery to call the... RCMP or whatever and report it, but 
I definitely wasn't thinking straight when I parked behind it and stepped out into the open air to take a look around. To the left of the road was an open field, and to the right, where I had stopped, was a group of trees, probably 10 meters from the road, branches twisted and silhouetted and blocking out most of the moonlight. From where I was, I couldn't see anyone in the car or nearby, and I just got this feeling. You know, I knew I would never stop thinking about it if I didn't make sure everything was okay, so... I grabbed an emergency flashlight I had in the trunk and decided to check. Hello? Anyone? I didn't really know where to go from there. It was freezing out and I didn't have a coat, so sticking around wasn't the most compelling option until I heard a voice. Hello? Hey, is this your car? Is someone there? Yeah, where are you? Over here. Are you okay? Do you need me to call a tow truck or something? Hello? It sounded like they were in the trees, which was weird, so... I took a few steps closer when the sound cut through the still air. It's easy to brush off sounds when you're out there. You learn to tell yourself that every shifting, snapping branch is just an owl. Every crunch in the dirt is just a raccoon or a skunk. Even every strangely human scream echoing in the distance is just a fox or a deer or an elk. You can rationalize. I mean, those are all things to be wary of, but when you can hear they're far away. Are you okay? Help. Is someone hurt? Hello? Please. Where are you? Over here. Okay. Okay, I think I'm close. Just keep talking. I can't really see. Please. Oh, shit. I left my phone in the car. I'll go call for help. Just... Don't I'm just going back to my car. You can see it from here, okay? Is that you? Come on, shh. Hello? I'm right here. The voice was the farthest it had been, but... There was hot breath on my neck, and then came that cold, prickling, crawling feeling up your spine when something is behind you, and you just know. Oh, shit! Oh, 
I had every intention of starting the car and just speeding off as fast as I could, but my hands were shaking too much to hold on to the keys, and I didn't want to open my eyes to look for them, so I kept them shut, and I pressed my head against the wheel, and I waited. Hey, you okay? Another driver, lucky for me had had the same plan I had about taking the shortcut home and saw my car. I explained that I'd pulled over for a car too, but, you know, of course, when I turned to point it out, it was gone. And they gave me some advice that I've never forgotten. If you're driving at night on something you'd consider a back road, don't stop for a car if you can't see the driver. Mostly because people actually get kidnapped and killed that way a lot, but it boils down to you just don't know what's out there. You know, when they said they wouldn't have stopped then if they didn't see the two of us actually get back into my vehicle. I went cold and quietly told them that I was on my own. And I have never seen the color leave someone's face so quickly. They were kind enough to help me search my car, though aside from some scratches on my back right door and slivers in my palms there was no sign anything or anyone else was or had ever been there. They bid me a safe drive home and warned me to keep a careful eye on the back seat. Even though it was a white-knuckled, wide-eyed trip, I obviously got home okay. And uh, needless to say, I don't take that shortcut anymore. Oh shit. Wow. Whoa. God. Holy hell. All right, Kevin, last to arrive, last to go. It's all on your shoulders, man. Take us home. Let me silence my phone. So, when I was in junior high and up until freshman year of high school, I used to walk home with this girl, Sarah. We were walking buddies, except as we got older, she got hotter, and I got a pretty bad crush on her. It was embarrassing. I didn't know how to take it to the next level. We'd get to that place where we'd part ways to our own houses, and that was that. Except one afternoon, she told me something weird was going on, and everything kind of changed. She was getting these phone calls when she was at home after school, and I was a latchkey kid, so I knew the scenario. But until that point, I always thought her parents were more cheery, upbeat, and, well, present than mine. But it turns out, no. Her dad, the mega-successful entrepreneur, was always traveling. Her mom, former Southern Belle, kept up with a lot of clubs and charities and crap. So Sarah's stuck alone, watching TV after school, and someone's calling her on the landline. This was before caller ID, so I'm dating myself and outing my home dimension. And she said at first they'd call and hang up immediately. Then they started waiting until she picked up and before she could get a word out of him, Hello? Who is this? Click. I said it's probably nothing to worry about. Just some punk kids trying to get a rise out of you. She was not pleased. Her parents had said the same thing. What can we do, honey? You want us to come home earlier to catch them? They'll just hang up again. You wait and see. It'll stop as soon as it started. The next day, I didn't see her at school. I figured she was sick. So I walked home alone. And that was when she called me. I'll never forget how hard my heart was pounding, thinking, 
Girls don't call me. Apparently, she was at school, but she had kept a low profile and took a different route home. She said they called again, and this time, they stayed on the line, made some rustling noises, and she heard breathing. Wheezing? No, breathing. Heavy breathing. Well, that's never good. I don't know why, but it's not. It's the one thing that you don't want to know about a stranger, intimate knowledge of their breath. So I said, let's call the cops. And she was like, I don't know. I don't think they'll take me seriously. Do you mind coming over? Do I mind? Really had to pretend to mull this over. Well, I'll miss the end of DuckTales, but I've seen this one. Actually, yeah, I mean, no, I, I don't mind. I'm coming over. So I got on the Grey Ghost. That was my bicycle, just a mongoose minus the decals. When I got there, she gave me a hug, which was awesome and not normal. She was wearing what could best be described as form-fitting denim short shorts, basically Daisy Dukes minus the butt cleavage. It was a lot. It turned out her parents wouldn't be there for hours, so we could just chill. Luckily, I was not wearing sweatpants, since that would have gotten awkward fast. No, I had slipped into the most goth, ultra-baggy trip jeans I had. We cracked open a couple Pepsis, plopped down on the couch, and proceeded to watch Aladdin. Don't ask. Before long, it was dark, and when the phone rang again, I realized we didn't really have a plan. It was her house, so she picked it up, but when she put it to her ear and said hello, I knew whatever was happening was not good, based on the dreadful expression on her face. I motioned to hand it to me, and I was about to lay into these a-holes when the voice from the other end croaked in. You alone? I dropped the phone. Scared the shit out of me. I did not expect that voice. I was thinking it would sound like a crank call from some teenager, not a legit creep. I told her next time we need to hit the speakerphone so we can hear the bastards. I said bastards, but this wasn't Wiley kids playing a prank, and we knew it. This was evil. And before we could hit play on the DVD, it rang again. Sarah put it on speakerphone. I know you're there. Sitting on the couch in your shorts, drinking soda. She hit mute and said, What do we do? What do we do? He's watching us. She said, Actually, I've been changing into shorts after school the past few days, so it doesn't mean he's out there. But it still made my skin crawl. He continued, You wouldn't wear those outside, would you? But now that you're alone, it's safe. And that's good. Very good. Sarah said she wasn't alone. He was like, Right. Then he paused and said, I know. There's a malign presence with you. His eyes glowing and demonic. I see him with his stupid plaid shirt. Hey, asshole, I can hear you. What are you going to do? Chug another Pepsi? He hung up. I was pissed because we were making progress, but I was equally terrified since he described my shirt to a T. And as we both reached for our soda cans, we started freaking out, running around and double-checking the locks on doors and windows, peering into the darkness outside, trying to see something, anything. 
I thought I saw someone on the back lawn, but it was just Giorgio, the neighbor's collie. We dimmed all the lights in the house and sat there, wondering what to do. That's when a light flashed at us through a bay window. I almost shat myself. So we called the cops, and they said they'd come by, but they'd like to talk to an adult. <laughs> it was like they didn't even believe us. The cops searched around the house and couldn't find any signs of a prowler or witnesses to a peeping Tom. But when Sarah's mom hunted down the phone number he had called from, it got weirder. Apparently, it came from an old Italian-style villa behind them, abandoned, big for sale sign on the lawn. The family that lived there had moved out a few months earlier after the dad committed suicide. No note, no explanation. I think someone exposed him for being a creep, and he couldn't face his life after that. The thing about creeps, though, is they can't let go. Cops couldn't pin it on anyone else. Sarah's dad's company collapsed and they left town. She disappeared from school. Her family, it was like they went off the grid. I haven't been able to find Sarah or her profile on any social media. I can't find her number listed for the life of me. For all we know, she ended up in a mental ward like this. Not a condemned haunted one, but you know what I mean. The worst thing to me is the wrong person disappeared. That and Pepsi in a can still gives me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> How's that for scary? That was a good one. That's pretty good. <laughs> Suck on that tail. Fuck. All right, that was actually inappropriate. Now, can anyone honestly say that they don't have a pair of trip monster stud pants sitting in their closet just waiting for them to come back in style? Not that they ever went out. Well, guess what? We're in the 2020s. Throw them on. You can do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> Live your best life. I own two life. pairs do of trip pants. YOLO, bro. Because haters gonna hate. Alright, alright, alright. That about does it for another year, if I'm not mistaken. Show of hands. Who won this year? <laughs> it's not a competition, Cole. I think it's obvious anyway. Hey, you had two people telling your story. So it's worth double? So it's worth the same as everyone else's. And I think everyone killed it. Pun intended. Was that technically a pun? You did. We did. I hope tonight has been entertaining, but also illuminating for you. Maybe not every one of these stories is true, but some were. Some we've carried with us and continue to. Remember that when you look into the darkened edge of a forest or down an empty hallway of an abandoned building. You may never know what might be looking back. Is this where I say boo again? <laughs> Anyone up for Denny's? I'm down for Denny's. That's where I was born. Denny's. Really? Conceived. Whatever. I'm game. <laughs> I hear Outback Steakhouse makes a mean bloomin' onion. What is a bloomin' onion? Oh, it's amazing! It's this gorgeous onion that they cut and spread open like a precious flower. You know, in college I was in a cult where you had to eat a whole onion in order to get in. I got in, but I've had horrible indigestion ever since. <laughs> hey, Sean. Hang back. What's that? Is what you said about... Is what you said true? About almost being committed to a place like this? Yeah, man. Why? Nothing. Just... I, uh... I was also in a place like this. Oh, shit. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's fine. I, uh, 
but um, this place really reminds me of it. This place? Yeah, I... Are you okay? When I was here, uh, when I was in a place like this, I knew this person. Uh, I was a kid. Most of us were. But not him. He was a lot older. I never liked him. None of the kids did. He was different. We used to trick him into following us down into the laundry room. Oh. And then we'd lock him inside. He was easy to trick. Okay. One day we locked him down there, just before a massive hurricane hit. All the power got knocked out. And he started freaking out and knocking shit over. And He uh, must have knocked something that blocked the door, because we, uh, we, we couldn't open it again. Oh, God. We were kids. You know, we got scared. We were worried we'd be in trouble, so we left. But no one said anything. It took almost four days before they found him. Someone had spilled the beans eventually, and uh, they had us all lined up, ready for punishment as they opened the door, but uh, in that time, he must have been starving because uh, he had eaten. What the hell did he eat? Rats. A number of them. They found large bites taken out of some, some that got away, others he... Uh, he pulled out the guts with his hands and, uh, and from then on, something was really wrong. He, he, he didn't stop, you know? They brought him back up, but he, he kept finding the rats and killing them. We'd, we'd be out in the yard and he'd bolt off, slamming his shovel down into something and then reaching down to take a bite out of it. And, okay. And, okay. Why are you... Because, because when I left this place, that place, I, uh... I never looked back. I, I never thought back. Until now. In this place, this... I don't think he ever left a place like this. Look, that's messed up, man. But you were a kid. And kids do stupid things. It sounds like he was off before whatever you did to him. Yeah. Hey. And thank you for telling me. Yeah. Anyway. Let's get out of here. Happily. I, uh, can't save us hungry now. Huh.